amazing window of opportunity to, to draw near uh, in the sanctuary before you, before with your people, with an open Bible. And we pray you bless this time for us to our hearts. Help us, guide us, teach us, bless us through this class and time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 5. And just a quick review. Uh, remember chapter 1, uh, the uh, ascension, uh, uh, choosing of a new apostle. Is it possible to put that back one on for me or not? No. Uh, and then chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit as promised, the birth of the church, the miracle of languages, and Peter preaches 3,000 are saved. In the next chapter, chapter 3, we see uh, the miracle of the lame man being healed. Peter preaching again, second message in, uh, um, in the book of Acts, 5,000 saved. Chapter 4, we covered last week the first signs of persecution uh, of the church and the, the first time they stand before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council. And then here in chapter 5, we're going to see the first sin and discipline recorded in the early church. Uh, of course, not, um, not the first sin, obviously sin before that because all men are sinners, but the first recorded instance of there being sin, dishonesty, hypocrisy, and how God deals with that. That's the focus of this chapter. So, um, we mentioned uh, before the Sanhedrin, um, there's a few instances where we'll see the apostles and others standing before the Sanhedrin. We mentioned this last week. Peter and John, remember the first time in the last chapter, and also we're going to see them again in this chapter, uh, Peter and the other apostles before the Sanhedrin. Uh, we'll see that. So uh, a quick outline of this chapter, just chapter 5. Uh, the opening verses introduce us to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's quite an insightful account of, uh, of, of dishonesty and, and how that's dealt with with the apostles and the Lord. It's followed by the signs and wonders of the apostles, people getting healed and things. Then they're arrested again. They're delivered by a miracle from the prison. And then they're arrested again, brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, then Gamaliel, one of the wise Jewish uh, Pharisees there, gets up and gives them a word of wisdom. And then lastly, um, the persecution and yet the continuance of the apostles. So that's chapter 5. So to get it in context, let's just remind ourselves how the end of chapter 4 leaves us. We see um, verse 32, that of those who believed uh, were of one heart and one soul, neither did any say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Um, uh, Yeah. Verse 33, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet. They distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's how the chapter ends. 
we can see unity, oneness of heart and soul. The church is growing. Uh, The apostles are ministering. We can see as an expression of love, there are some who have decided to sell possessions and bring money to provide the needs for the people. Remember, it's a unique time. Thousands had come for the Feast of Pentecost. Um, we, We read in chapter Two and three thousands getting saved. Many of them are staying on Jerusalem. There's obviously a great need in the church. Many are moved in their hearts to try and meet the need. So they have all things in common. Um, Some may claim from this that the early church taught communism. Um, This is a far cry from the, the communism we think of. This isn't, although they had things in common, they were not forced to do so. Not by gunpoint. They weren't commanded to do it. They weren't expected to do it. They weren't, as far as we know, even told to do it. This was something that was organic, something that was voluntary. This was something that was a a fruit of the love of God uh, in the people. Uh, We don't know that it was, um, we don't know how successful it was, how long it lasted, how if it really solved the problem. We do know later, even in Paul's missionary journeys, he's visiting the churches and collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. It it appears to be um, uh, something that continued to be a problem. Um, Some have used this passage to teach that today there should be some kind of church community concept um, where perhaps the wealthier should sell some of their possessions or scale down a little bit to help the others. Um, uh, I've known of cases also where there have been Christian communes or or, uh, what's the word? The uh, campuses where they have houses and gyms and swimming pools and I've I've known people who sold their houses and moved to those types of campuses. They gave their money to the campus and crazy things which which I, I think some of those things have a, are not well founded, and uh, and th- that's not what th- this is is, is teaching. Um, but this is given for a pattern for the churches. The results, uh, you know, we can see many of these things are, are for our for our learning and application, of course. But we don't see in any of the other church epistles um, where Paul or Peter or any of these guys are teaching the churches that they write to that you should do what happened here in Jerusalem. This was, as far as we can see, a one-off, uh, unique need for the early church, particularly in those early days and weeks in Jerusalem to meet the need. So uh, we get our doctrine for church life, not from the book of Acts, it's a historical book, but from the epistles. We don't read of it there. Anyway, point being, we see a beautiful picture of the church. This is how chapter 4 ends. Um, One heart, one soul. And then they introduce a man, Barnabas, in just a couple of lines. We know that he's going to become a prominent central figure in the book of Acts. He's going to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys, etc. The son of encouragement. And he's introduced here in just a line as the one he's used as an example. There are many others that could have been used, but they... They say Barnabas came and he laid his uh, money at the, the apostles' feet. Um, we'll talk more about him later. If we jump into the text, let's read these first few verses. But, 
This is the first word of chapter 5. Everything's looking wonderful, the unity, the love, the fellowship, but this is a, a turning point. Something is, is uh, we're going to see a, a different, different shade, a different color, a different flavor of what's happening here. We introduce the principle of hypocrisy in the church. So, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So, this is what happens. Uh, we have to speculate a little bit, but we, we know, we can, we can definitely conclude this. The heart and the motive of Barnabas, as well as many others, was right. Uh, he was free in grace, he was motivated by love, and he had that expression, and it was a financial gift. The heart of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, their hearts were definitely not right. It sounds strange to think that you can give selfishly, but that's exactly what they were doing. They were doing it for the wrong motive. They wanted some kind of recognition. Perhaps they were jealous because Barnabas and others who had brought the funds and laid them at the apostles' feet for the need had been honored or recognized or loved or somehow uh, perhaps Ananias and Sapphira are sitting at the back and they're a little bit jealous. We don't know. But for whatever reason, they had a different motive in their heart. And um, from these verses, we can see that they agreed together. This was a conversation. This was a plan. This was something that was hatched out. They knew they were going to sell it. They were going to get this price. They were going to give this much and lie and say that, they were, that that was all they got. So, um, hypocrisy. A good definition for this is... Um, imitating outwardly while resenting or mocking inwardly, or, here's another definition, acting or claiming to have higher standards or belief than you actually do. But perhaps the best definition comes from the Greek word that the Lord uses when he addresses the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. This is the chapter where he just lets it loose on them. He unloads on them. And he calls them whited sepulchers filled with dead men bones and all the rest of it. And then he says, you hypocrites. And the Greek word literally means to play the part like an actor. So you have your script, you learn the lines, you wear the outfit, you know how to act the part, and you, you're there center stage, but it's not who you really are. You are just acting a certain way. And in this case, because they wanted to be perceived a certain way. And hypocrisy, imagine, as illustrated here, in the church, where the flesh desires to be recognized somehow as being spiritual or godly or gifted in such a way that they would sacrifice the integrity that you can have before the Lord and the transparency you can have before people to pretend to be something that you're not, that you would just... Uh, uh, as the Lord said about the Pharisees, he said, you, you enjoy the praise of men more than the praise of God, is the issue. Um, we could say that Satan would love to see uh, people who 
who are hypocrites to be in the church, used in the church, leading the church, um, where the, the wrong motive is in the heart. Uh, and often hypocrisy, of course, by nature is something that's hidden. It's a mask. It's a disguise. It's a pretense. And God um, can have his way and his time of, of finding that out and bringing it to the surface and dealing with it. Um, so, in verse 1 here, but begins the story, the first record of, uh, of a problem from the inside. We've already seen the outward persecution, chapter 4. That's going to continue through the book. And here we have an issue that raises not from outside of the church, but from inside the church. The church is always beautiful, but sometimes there will be isolated cases of the flesh or incidents that happen in the church. Verse 2, they kept back part of the proceeds. So Ananias comes into the church. Uh, he lays the money down. Probably he's ready to receive his honor from the apostles, and he doesn't get what he's expecting. He gets something quite different. Sorry, did I go back one? Yeah. Um, this is similar to the story in Joshua chapter 7. Maybe you're familiar with it, with the man by the name of Achan. They had crossed the Jordan. They came into the promised land. And God said about destroying that city and taking the land, he said, you will take no spoils of the city. This was like the first fruits of the land, being totally dedicated to God. Uh, the, the Hebrew word is harem. It means accursed. It means to be completely devoted to God. He said, this city, you take no spoils, no treasures, no cattle, no survivors. This is harem. But there was one man by the name of Achan. Uh, uh, they, go, they go to go up against the second city, and there is a defeat. And Joshua says, he goes before the Lord, Oh Lord, why are we being defeated? What's happened? Why have you brought us here to forsake us? And God says, Joshua, get up. There is sin in the camp. You look to me and complaining about to me, you should be looking in the camp. There is a problem there. He says, um, My covenant which I commanded, for they have even taken some of the accursed, that's the harem, devoted to God things, and have both stolen and deceived. They, notice plural, because um, in the end, Achan and his whole family are judged for this and killed for this under the law. And they have stolen and deceived. They have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. And a few verses later in the same chapter, this is Achan's own confession. Uh, and this is after the lots are cast, and it gradually goes from to to the tribes and to the families. And finally, Achan had an opportunity to come forward and repent, but he didn't. And finally, when the lot fell on Achan, he said, okay, it's me. I did, I did sin. And he confesses. He said, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So he makes a confession. Similar story in the fact that Achan, again, with his family privy to it, had done something that they completely knew they weren't supposed to do, and then also lied about it and pretended that wasn't the case, hid it under the dirt in the sand. 
but the Lord sees. Um, perhaps with his wife after the event, look what I've got, this beautiful Babylonian garment. He tries it on. What do you think, honey? Look at my, do I look like a Babylonian? Do I look like a Babylonian prince, honey? Yes, you do. And, uh, and the gold and the silver, and they bury it together, thinking no one would ever find out. And in both of these cases, as we'll see also in Acts 5, God makes a very, very severe example of both Achan and also of Ananias. And the reason for that, both of these events are crucial times of a new era, a new beginning that God was giving. And God had to make it crystal clear. He had to make an example so it would have an effect on the church. We don't know the backstories of these um, we know that in 1 John 5.16, I think it is, or 21, it speaks about the sin unto physical death. Uh, it means progressively on God's long-suffering timetable, if someone continues after warning and conviction and God speaking to the hearts or maybe even physically disciplining them and they don't listen, they don't listen, they don't listen, eventually he might say, okay, I'm going to take you home early. Because we read this event and we say, oh my gosh, it's so severe that he just took Ananias and Sapphira like that. He just killed Achan and his family like that. But we don't know the backstory. We don't know other things that had been happening or going on. So we, we, we were in the dark a little bit. But there is a sin unto physical death. But we don't make those judgments. Only God knows. So... Uh, Ananias comes, he doesn't get what he expects. Maybe expecting Peter to honor him, but Peter says, where is it, verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Um, It's interesting that in Peter's discernment, he makes notice that Satan has put this in his heart. It doesn't say that Satan filled his heart, but Satan... Satan filled his heart with something, with the lies. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan gave these, these initiations, these thoughts, this idea, this temptation, if you like, to lie, like a seed, which Ananias allowed to, to, uh, to bear fruit in their decisions. And Peter names it. He says, this, is, this has a satanic or a demonic um, uh, root. Um, we don't believe that a Christian can be demon-possessed. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, but we do believe that believers can be tempted or influenced or even uh, demonized to a certain degree or affected by the demonic atmosphere, and that seems to be what um, is happening here. We're on the assumption that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. But what was the sin that they were punished for? Um, it wasn't that they didn't give everything because they weren't expected or required to give anything, right? But it was the fact that they lied to the Holy Spirit. We don't know the full story, but perhaps, and again, I'm speculating, but perhaps they thought, oh, look what's happening, and oh, people are giving, and oh, hey, we have that land, and that... If we could sell that, oh, we tried to sell it, but we've never been able to sell that. I know, but okay, Lord, if you would enable us to sell that, 
If you would do that, we're praying for a miracle. If you would enable us to sell that, then we promise, we make a vow before you right now. If you do that, we will give it all to the church. And then lo and behold, it's been on the market for three years. The next day it sells. Oh, boy, look at it's got this money. And then you begin to rationalize, and before you know it, we're giving, you know, it changes. And this was the issue, their heart. They had made some kind of promise, commitment, which they broke before the Lord. We don't know all the circumstances. And then uh, Peter goes on, verse 4. He says, while, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart that you have not lied to men but to God? So they wanted to be recognized, to have some kind of spiritual status. Uh, but, but they are called out. It, we don't actually know if this was public, if it was before the church. It, it very well may have been in some kind of public gathering. It definitely was known by everyone very quickly, and fear spread throughout the church when they heard of how God dealt with this. But it could be, that the apostles were in one place and people were coming in and it was a public thing where Peter called him out and Ananias walks in, yeah, why has Satan filled your heart with this lie? He calls him right out on it, imagine. Instead of being honored on the outside, he is exposed on the inside. There's some lessons we can get from these few verses. First, the presence of the flesh. Uh, the, the church is... The, is uh, the people of God, the temple of God, the spirit of God abides there, but the flesh always is going to have a presence. And Satan is always going to have uh, a work that he wants to do. Um, and discernment. Their plan they thought was foolproof. No one will ever know. And that's true. You can keep your secrets before men, but not from God, right? But Peter knew that they'd had a lie that was implanted, that was sown in their hearts. And then lastly, just a footnote, the deity of the Holy Spirit, perhaps not one that comes into too much question, but if there was ever a verse to show that the Holy Spirit is, is divine, co-equal with the Father and the Son, this is one where it says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. The next verse says you've lied unto God. Okay, then he goes on, uh, verse 5, it says, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last... So great fear came upon all those that heard those things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Fear fell on the church, it says. Imagine being one of those guys that has to carry him out. Right? You're watching the whole thing and you, you've been there for you saw Barnabas and the offering and the unity and the joy. And you were there. Ananias walked in. All of a sudden something unusual happened. Instead of Peter being, oh, praise the Lord, may God bless you, all of a sudden, did you see Peter? Yeah, he got fiery. What happened? I don't know. And the next thing, these young men, obviously young believers, because everyone were young believers then, these young men, young believers, are carrying out Ananias. What, what a severe lesson to, to hide in your heart. Now, verse 7, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened took about that long for her to get her hair done, get her 
choose the dress she was going to wear for her grand entrance. By this time, she's imagining it's filtered through the church. Everyone knows how much we gave, how giving we are, how godly we are, how much faith we have. About three hours should do it by the time everyone knows. And I will walk in and I will march down the aisle and everyone will, you know, recognize and honor. Perhaps she's thinking that way. For whatever reason, there's a few hours that pass. She comes in, doesn't know what's happening. And Peter answers her and says, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she said, yes, for this much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They're on their way back in. And they will carry you out also. Quite something. She didn't even have time to respond or think about it. Just like her husband, um, she, she dropped dead in the moment. Immediately, the word is used in verse 10. And then, immediately, she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, same expression for Ananias, and the young men, <laughs> it's quite, quite a lesson for them this day, the young men came in and found her dead. And carried her out and buried her by her husband. Now, I imagine during those three hours, if you were one of those three men, you're you're carrying the body, what happened? I don't know. Do you think, Peter, do you think it's a coincidence? Did God do this? This is unbelievable what's happening. And you, you know how wicked our hearts can be, how we can rationalize away miracles and answers to prayers. And perhaps they're thinking, it was a coincidence. Ananias was so freaked out, he just dropped dead from a heart attack. But this would remove all doubt. There was no coincidence involved. This was God's, God's hand of judgment in the moment. In verse uh, 11, we read, For the second time so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Notice that, two groups, the church and also those outside the church who heard these things. There was, there was fear. This was a healthy fear. No time to play games. We're not playing church or acting the part, particularly in this inception of the early church. God wanted to start with a, very, with, a, with a pure and sure, solid foundation. Great fear, second time we read that. Also, uh, this is the first time that the word ecclesia is used in the book of Acts, although, of course, the church began in chapter 2, the first time we read of the word actually used. Uh, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Um, Remember the temple complex. um, And then this would be Solomon's porch in in this area. It kind of goes like that. And this is a massive courtyard. And Solomon's porch, that's where Jesus preached in John 10. This is where they preached in Acts uh, early on in the early chapters of Acts. And here they are again, purely because it's a place where many, many of the believers can gather. They don't have any church building or anything at this point. They would meet in homes, in small groups, and then go to the temple. Yet none of the rest dared to join in. These are the unbelievers. Remember, all that heard feared. That's this group. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, we've, we've heard about this, uh, we've seen this principle in the opening chapters, chapter 2, 
3,000. Um, uh, again, in chapter 3, also in chapter 4, the, num- the, the tells us the number. Chapter 5, multitudes of men and women were constantly added. That's this verse. We'll see it again in chapter 6, chapter 11, and all through Paul's journeys. Pockets of people, in some cases it says many people, coming to the Lord. This is a beautiful, beautiful work of God that we see. We, 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 when we think of someone coming to the Lord, we esteem that as, as the greatest miracle uh, that could happen, and heaven will reveal that. All of heaven rejoices at this uh, one person being saved. Um, so there is, we see this, this sin, this hypocrisy. Then we see that it's purged or purified. And then after that, we see that there is, there is power that follows and fruitfulness. Um, remember back in that passage with Joshua, when Joshua turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why aren't we getting victories? God basically said, don't look to me. There's something that has to be dealt with. And uh, um, after Achan was dealt with, after that sin was dealt with, then they got victories, they got blessings, and they got the spoils again. God will often allow some type of purging or work to happen in a church uh, to allow us to go forward to the next season and the next chapter. Revivals happening in persecuted places. We see it around the world. Why? Because where there is a lot of persecution. Every believer there, every day, is paying a price. They are very aware of, of what it means to make decisions for Christ. To be a disciple isn't a casual thing, oh, I'll go to church, why not? In many places, they are risking their life to do that. Um, so in those places, the faith of those people is often, it's, it's the real thing. You're not going to go to church just to play the part when your life is being risked, right? So in those places where there's persecution and real faith and purity, you often see many people coming to the Lord and and revivals. Um, But sometimes God, particularly in the West, um, sometimes churches go to sleep. Sometimes there's familiarity, there's sin entertained, it becomes traditional or religious, and God has to shake things up out of love and grace towards the people. I've, I've seen it. Sadly, more than once in my life where, where sometimes it's painful to go through it. Um, but the fruit of the other side can be a beautiful thing. So they come to Solomon's porch. Um, uh, verse 14, many are added, increasingly added to the Lord. And this is the beautiful theme of this book, the building of the church, the growth of the church. Uh, And then verse 15. So that they brought the sick out of the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. This is quite something. We've seen this through the book. We've cited some of the other passages in Acts already about how at the hands of the apostles... There were miracles and healings that were being done. And and often that was to set the stage for them to preach the gospel, to validate the message and the messenger and many people getting saved. They were so convinced, the people, of the power, the authority of God's presence and work through the hands of the apostles, they were believing even the shadow of the apostles could heal them. Now, 
It doesn't actually say that the Peter's shadow did heal them, but it does say that the people were, were expecting that. Um, this isn't to say it didn't happen. We don't know. But just to make a point, it doesn't say that that happened. It's very possible it did. A little bit like the hem of the garment of, of Jesus. When Jesus sensed the virtue going out of him, and he said to his disciples, who touched me? And they said, Every, so many people are touching you, Lord. And he said, no, but I sense virtue go out of me. And then he turned to her, and she confessed it was I. And she had touched the hem of his garment. And she touched it with a faith expectation which God honored. Perhaps in this case also, with that expectation, God was honoring people. Even perhaps in the shadow of Peter and the apostles, they were getting healed. Either way, there were miraculous things that were happening, beautiful things that were unquestionably the work of God. Not a particular man who had a particular gift. The apostles were not, were not uh, allowing themselves to be elevated in any, any sense, but it was all setting the stage for the preaching of the gospel, the elevation of Christ. Um, verse 17, let's jump to there. And then the, the, uh, the high priest rose up, and we often see this through the book of Acts. It's similar to what you see through the book of Nehemiah. You see the people of God, the work of God, the vision, and then you see the opposition. You see the resistance. You see those two elements through Nehemiah. You see it through the book of Acts. You see it in church history and church life. Um, many people getting saved, many people getting healed, and then the high priest rose up. There it is. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and those who were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, by the way, God must have a sense of humor because don't, don't forget the Sadducees don't believe in the holy. Don't believe in spiritual things. They don't believe in angels or the resurrection. And it was God had an angel uh, do this task of letting them out of the prison in the middle of the night. Um, verse twenty. And what did the angel say? Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Verse twenty-one. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning. And taught quite something. So the angel comes, they're in the prison. We don't know what, what they're doing, perhaps waiting, praying, talking. We don't know. All of a sudden, the angel comes, they're released, and the angel says, okay, here's your commission. You go to the temple and you preach your heart out. You preach all the words of this life. I don't know how much sleep they got that night. <laughs> probably not much. Just talking about what, what, what had happened and what was happening. They probably couldn't wait to get to the temple, perhaps the first ones there in the morning. And what did they do? They started to preach. Amazing. And um, verse... Where is it? Sorry, did we go? Verse 21. Uh, when they heard that, they entered early in the morning. But the high priest, there it is again, and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. At this point, they didn't know that they, they were already been released. They didn't know they were already preaching at the temple. They thought, those guys in the prison, bring them up. We're going to have the council. We're going to deal with them. This is the Sanhedrin again. Do we have that? 
a picture of them somewhere, but the Sanhedrin, the high court of the land, uh, mature, powerful, experienced men, the same council that Jesus had stood before, um, and they were going to deal with them as a court. Verse 22, but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, it's interesting because verse 19 says that an angel opened the doors. But here it says, their report, where the guards were watching outside, doesn't say they were sleeping, says they were watching, and the doors were securely locked, and somehow they got out. When you go to Acts 12, there's a similar story with Peter getting released from prison, remember? And the angel wakes him up and the door swings open. He walks out right through the door, right through the guards. And we can presume, we don't know for sure, that the door closes again. The guards somehow have some moment of blindness and don't realize what's happening. The angel ushers Peter out as he did the apostles here. And when they go to the prison, it looks as though they've walked through the wall or something. They can't explain it. What, what an incredible uh, miracle. Found no one inside. And when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. It doesn't say they wondered how this miracle happened. They wondered how did they escape? How did they... They just wondered, oh no, what does this mean? What's going to happen now? And at that moment, one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. This is like the final blow. Okay, they're thinking, okay, those guys, they escaped. They're probably running for the hills. They're probably on a boat to Greece right now. We're never going to see them again. Oh, no, no, no. They're in the temple courtyard, and they are preaching the same message about Jesus being raised from the dead, and etc. And they're thinking, oh, my goodness, what is happening? So, They send them, the captain went with the officers and brought them out without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. Why? Because people are getting healed. These incredible things are happening. And if they went in there and dragged them out by force, they could incite a riot. So they had to do it a little bit more tactfully. They bring them back to the council, verse 27, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. It's almost said with a bit of disdain. It doesn't even mention the name of Jesus. just said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in, in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, the beautiful thing about this statement is this isn't, the apostle saying this, this is the high priest, you could say the, the voice of the enemy that's recognizing this. Um, this isn't the exaggerated confession of the evangelist. This is the, this is the viewpoint of, of the high priest. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And they were saying that in, in a negative way, but we hope and pray that that will be said about us. You have filled Peace Haven with your doctrine, with your teaching about Christ, with the gospel. What a wonderful way to be known, that the, the gospel, the doctrine of, the, of Christ is, is, is known throughout Peace Haven and beyond. 
There's the Sanhedrin in their garments, the high council. Verse 29, but Peter, and it's wonderful, it begins with the word but. It implies there's no intimidation. He's not shrinking down. It's like they're saying, didn't we tell you not to do But Peter gets right back in his face. And the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Um, one, one point to mention on this. Intend to bring this man's blood on us at the end of verse 28. Just uh, forgot to mention. Remember, through the messages that we've, we've studied together already in Acts uh, 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4, we've heard Peter quite boldly point the finger right at the Sanhedrin, right at the Jewish leaders and say, you crucified him. And that's what they're making reference to here. You intend to bring this man's blood on us? Remember in Matthew 27, when Pilate has Jesus and Barabbas and the people cried out, he said, you know, who will you choose? And they said, we want Barabbas. And Pilate symbolically washes his hands and says, I will have nothing to do this. And what does he say? He says, his, my, I am clean from the blood of this man. And the leaders cry out and say, his blood be on us and our children. Right? In 2.23, Peter had said to them, this man that you nailed to the cross... 2.36, God made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. 3.13, Jesus who you delivered up and denied. Verse 14, you denied the Holy One. 3.15, you put to death the Prince of Life. 4.10, Jesus Christ the Nazarene who you crucified. That's a common, there's a theme running all the way through it. Not taking any prisoners. Not saying, well, it was the Romans. No, you crucified the Messiah. Intent to bring this man's blood on us? Is that what the plan is? But, Peter, we should obey God. The God of our fathers, verse 30, raised up Jesus, and he says it again whom you murdered by hanging on the tree. You couldn't use stronger words. Not killed or crucified, murdered. You murdered him by hanging him on the tree. So he doesn't cower at their intimidation. You, you want to bring this man's blood on us? And he comes right back by saying, you murdered him by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be the prince and the savior, to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. These are scorching words, searching words uh, that we'll see cut right to the heart. That's a phrase in the next verses. It cuts right to the heart what he's saying. Because ultimately, they know that there is truth to it. Whether they acknowledge at this moment that Jesus is the Messiah or not, they realize that they, were, they, they had uh, brought him to, to condemnation. And now they are confronted with this truth, which undoubtedly the Holy Spirit in this moment is bearing witness to. Through the Holy Spirit, you can imagine the presence and the authority of these these handful of Galileans surrounded by this lofty council of 
Jewish leaders and the Holy Spirit is convicting the hearts. They, they, though they may be resisting, their hearts are being cut. Um, verse 33. Uh, he says, we are witnesses of these things. Verse, uh, verse 33. When, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. This is the response. When they heard Peter's, uh, Peter's accusations and, and claims, they were furious. The, the, some translations say this. They were cut to the heart here and plotted to kill them. And then something strange happens, unusual happens. One in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, commanded them to put out the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it unless you even be found to fight against God. So in this somewhat fragile meeting in in the sense that the apostles could have been sentenced to death or whatever could have happened, all of a sudden this man Gamaliel, and this is a name that we will hear echoed later because in in the Apostle Paul's testimony, when he rehearses his, his training, he says, I was taught under Gamaliel. Gamaliel's name, he had a name, he was known as I think it's the beauty of the law because he was, he was known to be such an incredible teacher. And Paul boasts of this, saying, you know what my credentials are? I was a student of Gamaliel. The Jew would have gone, whoa, that meant something. He was quite something, this man who stood up. And it says that they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, that should do it, shouldn't it? will command them, don't speak in his name again. And they beat them and that, take care of it. They don't realize by now. They're, they're not stopping that. They're not going to quench this fire, this amazing, amazing move of God. So we can see the providence of God in this. Even in this man Gamaliel, uh, uh, an unregenerate Jewish leader, we can see the providence of God. And I'm sure many of us, if we could think back over certain circumstances, we were in some kind of meeting or something happened and all of a sudden someone said something and the whole meeting turns and you can see spiritual warfare at play in those types of things. It can go either way. Um, but more often than not, God is in that and can turn it for, for his purpose. Um, so verse, last two verses. Where are we? Verse 41, last two verses. And they departed from the presence of the council, listen to this phrase, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. 
It's Peter who writes in 1 Peter 4.14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. That's what Peter writes later in his epistle. Recognizing that if you are persecuted as a Christian, and this isn't because you, you, you know, some, some, some people, some Christians and Christian leaders and churches say we're being persecuted, but when you really look at it, <laughs> there, there's some error and issues that, you know, that, that's not persecution. But if you are being persecuted for Christ's sake, you are pure and you are just teaching and preaching the gospel, ministering to people, Peter says God is glorified through that. And if that happens to you, you are blessed. Quite something. And they, they rejoicing, it says, counted that they were worthy to suffer for his name. Let me ask you, how do you stop men like that? You can't. You can't, unless they are martyred, ultimately. But even then, uh, God brings that seed to incredible fruition. and We see it all through church history. In the last verse, this is how chapter 5 leads, leads us, leaves us. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Now notice, the last words of the council was, you must stop, you must cease preaching in this name. Have you got it? Have you got the message? Say it back to me. Have you got it? What does it say? Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease. They did not stop. It's almost like an emphasis there. And what were they doing? What did they continue doing? It says, teaching and preaching. I like the fact that it's got both of those terms in there. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Preaching and both are needed in the church. I think every message should have some teaching and some preaching. And sometimes it's, it's leaning more to teaching. Sometimes it leans more to preaching. Uh, if you are teaching a class, it should have some passion and some preaching in it. If you are preaching a message, it should have some teaching in it that you're also learning. There's, there's a crossover, but there's a distinction. Where preaching addresses the heart and the, and the will of man. Teaching addressing the mind of man to instruct them where there's a foundation laid and a doctrinal framework that's built so that people can think correctly according to the Word of God. They are getting to know the Bible. Sadly, there's a lot of preaching that happens in churches, but not much teaching, to the point that people can be in churches for years and not really get to know the Bible and perhaps only get to know the Lord in, in measures. But we need preaching and teaching. Both of them uh, were instructed to do, and we see that happening right here in every house and at the temple, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And may we never stop either. Amen? So, Father, thank you tonight for this chapter, these truths tonight to search our hearts and uh, use them to, to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, and, uh, and continue to give us uh, understanding through these nights and chapters and times together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, any uh, any questions or comments or uh, anything you want to? Yes. Um, what what what? Um, I noticed what at the beginning it talked about Ananias and his wife, who I think they were quite rich, 
and um, the scripture says they sold a possession, which kind of tells me that they had many possessions. Very possibly, yeah. Yes, and, and yet they only sold one, and they didn't give all of it, they gave a bit of it, which tells me like what riches are like. Which, what they can be like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in this case, I mean, I'm sure that there were many wealthy people there in the early church who 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 were spirit-filled and spirit-led and and had a beautiful motive. But in this particular case, yeah, there was. A this is why it always refers to things like it's easier for camel to go to the iron needle than for the man to go to the camel. Yeah, just because of our our. Yeah, not not yeah. All of our hearts, naturally. It's that's why perhaps the test of prosperity is is more of a challenge than the test of poverty, right? Because in in poverty, it's much easier for you to find your faith and be looking to God. Perhaps I mean it's a challenge still, but but with prosperity, it's more easy for you to become comfortable and forget about the Lord and and uh, and and look to you know not use use it for the benefit of the kingdom and those things it's a difficult challenge which I think is why uh, you know God God is in His wisdom is careful about about who He who who has the capacity and who you know He knows so. Yes. Yeah, not just in America. Yeah, in, in yes, it's all, everywhere, everywhere. Not everywhere, but you'll find it in all countries. You know, the different strains of that. That you're, if you have faith, then you should be blessed uh, physically and financially and in every way. And and uh, it's just so unfounded. The premise of that is so biblically unfounded and so damaging and so unbalanced and gets me going. I, I, I have a problem with that because a lot of people get discouraged and hurt and, and disillusioned and it's just not God's heart. It's just, yeah. So. I think that's interesting that we go back to the 50s and when people were actually prosperous then we all, we all got taught Christianity in schools. Now in, in the modern Europe, so-called, and in this country, it's, it's been literally given to you. And that's the thing with Ted Marshall tomorrow. Yeah, there's so much, uh, you know, liberalism and, and uh, religious tolerance and things like that you have to deal with. I mean, even if we get in the school, that they have a very strict criteria on what you can say and what you can't say. And, you know, you don't, you don't have total liberty to just be preaching the gospel like you would like to. But, uh, you know. Yeah. But we do have our freedoms and our liberties. We can we can preach on the street. We can share the gospel with people, and we do that on Saturday and talk to people. And and uh, but yeah, persecution. You know, problems inwardly in from within and without are are, are uh, you know are, are part of the church experience. And at the I was saying to Phil and Jeff the other day, I can't. I just said I can't believe it's in the church. It's just the whole climate and people's hearts and the responses is just such a great fellowship and 
don't sense any friction or issues. And you say that knowing that one day, hopefully years and years down the road, it can happen. Uh, but at the moment in the church, it's, it's just wonderful. The, the unity, the fellowship, the faith. And, uh, and of course, there's been a work of God that has, has, uh, has been involved to bring that to, to this place. And it's a joy to be a part of it, you know. Okay. Anyone else? Any comments from the balcony up there? All right. Thanks, Phil, so much. All right. God bless you all. How's that? Yeah. <laughs>